We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. Chase down Stephen Curry. Stops. Fires. Can't hit. Monte Ellis trying to tip it over to Reggie Williams. Winds up in the lap over Richardson. Up ahead. Look out. Hello. Amari Stoudemire elevates and detonates. Are you kidding me? Devastating dunk here in Oakland. Maybe the top dunk of his career. That was savage. I know broadcasters aren't supposed to jump out of their seats oh, like fans, but that was one of the nastiest dunks I've seen in my 20 years around the league. He has had some masterpieces in his career. I have never, ever seen anything like this. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. Very excited. Once again, another great guest. We're really lucking out in the month of August so far when nothing is happening. These guests are coming through and saving our podcast for us. I'm Mike Vihill, the host of this podcast. And of course, joining me, Sam Cooper. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. It's, you know, fun as always. We know you guys don't want to listen to us blabber on too much. We gave you the mailbag episode. We gave you our opinions on the Suns offseason. But for the most part, it's August. We're trying to bring an interesting guest who can actually give us some valuable insight. Uh, you know, we will talk a little bit about the schedule here because I think that's important. Uh, but for the most part, this episode, I'm really excited for who we're bringing on. Yeah, of course. I, you know, Tom been around a long time and, uh, you know, been the voice of the Suns for such a long time. I got to really profess how big of a fan of him that I am. And that was fun for me. And it's and it's really great. And that's coming up. But we did have to talk about the schedule. The Suns schedule was finally released and we have an idea of what it's going to look like. And it's pretty ugly. Of course, the Suns consistently have the toughest schedule in the league. What were your th- first thoughts when looking at the schedule for the 2019-20 season, Sam? Yeah, well, I saw some overreactions about, you know, what sort of bullshit is it that the Suns have the hardest schedule in the league? You know, guys, we can't play ourselves. It's We play in the toughest division in the NBA, uh, possibly the toughest division in the NBA for a very long time now. So this, uh, it's, it's really not surprising at all that the Suns are going to have the toughest schedule. That being said, there are some good things here uh, to look at if you're a Suns fan. And I really think the first third of the schedule uh, of the season was maybe the first thing that stood out to me, uh, maybe in terms of giving the Suns some favorable matchups. What I did, I looked at, okay, first of all, I should say the first 10 games are hard. You play a lot of really tough opponents. However, the vast majority of those games are at home. In fact, nine of the first 12 games are at home. And then after that, it gets a lot easier uh, considerably. So if you if you branch it all out and you look at just this first third of the season, this first 25 games or so, you've got 14 home games, only 10 away games. And then you've got one neutral game. That's that game against San Antonio. That's going to be played in Mexico City. In addition to that, 
if you go by win projections, I just looked at some Vegas over under, you know, win projections in those first 25 games. The start of the season is going to be tough, but you've got 10 games there against under 500 opponents. And you've got another five games against teams that are expected to be hovering around 500 teams like New Orleans, Orlando, Minnesota. The remaining games are going to be really tough. They're going to be, you know, against some contenders. But this combination of the Suns having some decently easy opponents in, you know, just after that first really hard stretch of 10 games and also the amount of home games that they're going to get in the beginning and also... The fact that they play the Warriors three times uh, before the All-Star break when the Warriors aren't going to have Klay Thompson. They play the Clippers, one of their first games of the season, week one, when the Clippers aren't expected to have Paul George. Little things like that break in their direction. Now, that doesn't mean they go into those games as the favorite against the Clippers, as the favorite against the Warriors in any of those games. But each of these little things make it a little bit easier for the Suns if they can go into the season at full health. Of course, that's obviously always a, you know, a big if, but if they can do that, they have a solid chance to uh, to start off the season pretty good, I think. I think those first 10 games will be tough, but I think it'll even out eventually. And, you know, maybe by Christmas time, by New Year's, uh, they have a fighting chance to have a pretty solid record. Yeah, I think it's a sobering reminder every year how difficult the West is in general. It's like when I first look at the schedule, the first thing I do is find the Eastern Conference teams. I'm like, when when do we finally face some winnable teams here and that uh, you know it takes a little bit to get there but the thing is i think the other thing it reminded me of is uh how much parity there is in in the league more than ever before because when you're looking at this schedule uh we start off october 23rd for those of you who don't know against sacramento at 7 p.m so not so far away just a few months away and uh the season's going to begin and you know Sacramento's probably the easiest game outside of memphis in that first, those first 10 games. And Sacramento is not, is, they're not a joke anymore. You know, they have De'Aaron Fox, they have uh, Bagley. They're, they're a good team. They have the ability to really attack you from multiple levels. And that's really the easiest one. And that's going to be difficult on its own. And then it's Denver Clippers, the new look Clippers, maybe without Paul George, as you talked about. Uh, Utah, which is a, a great team potentially, but potentially also figuring it out the way the Suns are going to be. They're, you know, there's going to be a lot of time with the amount of turnover and changing teams that the league has had. There's going to be a lot of time where these guys are getting used to each other. Golden State, another one not fully healthy and with a new player in uh, D'Angelo Russell, who we know that Devin Booker shows out against, you know, when he plays D'Angelo Russell, he's always good. So that's all happening within those first five games. And then we have Memphis. Memphis is one of those teams that could be relatively uh, winnable, but they're still pretty good. You know, <laughs> they, they have some players that can really attack you. And even when you go through it, there's Philadelphia, of course, a contender, even Miami, Jimmy Butler's on Miami now. It's like, it's, you know, you almost forget that that even happened because uh, the off season feels so long and so many different things happen. It's like, there's a superstar on that team as well, and we have to play them early on. So to me, it was a reminder of that, but I actually agree with you. I think there's optimism there. It's just looking at these teams and who we're playing, uh, the the more winnable ones are more winnable than ever now that there's a legitimate roster put together and not as many holes as previous. So, uh, you know, it's not as scary uh, after the first initial thought. And just like you said, I think it's silly when, when people freak out as having the toughest schedule. Of course, the, the worst teams have the toughest schedule, especially if they're in the West. That's just how it works. You play more teams with winning records, and that's basically how they base it. So that's what it's going to be. Yeah, it's not a death sentence to the Suns at all. You look at a team like the Kings last year who had an incredibly tough strength of schedule because they were projected to be a very bad team playing a lot of good teams. And look at how they did. You know, they did pretty well. But just to your point, there are going to be a lot more winnable games um, yeah, I don't know. I, it's just like you remember last season, we, we had so much hope after the opening game against Dallas. And then within maybe three weeks, we were two and 10. And it felt like the season was over. And so, you know, I don't want to overreact at the start of this season. But if we're going to market this as the turning of a, the page for the Suns, the start of a new era, getting a fresh start and, and really building around Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, giving them the complementary pieces to take the next step. It really does feel like those first two or three weeks are important. Yes, you have to win, uh, you know, the winnable games. You got to beat Memphis. Uh, you got to really try to beat teams like Brooklyn and Miami, even though it's not going to be easy. But you want to see them put up a good fight against a team like the Clippers or Golden State in that first week, against a team like the Lakers, against a team like Utah. Of course, I don't expect them to beat all those teams. That's completely unreasonable. But you want to steal one or two. 
there's decent chance. I talked about the first 25 games are pretty easy holistically, but the first just 10 games are pretty hard. And if the Suns start out one and nine, you know, it's it's pretty tough to see them necessarily rebounding from that and really being able to go into the rest of their season with that fresh chemistry and with full confidence in their ability as basketball players. You'd like to see them win three or four of those first 10 games if you want to have any chance of, of climbing out of the cellar of the Western Conference. It really, looking at the beginning of the schedule, it really makes you appreciate that Devin Booker didn't play with that Team USA team because although players do tend to come off of those uh, those Team USA teams improved, uh, you know, they you'd have a chance with Greg Popovich, you'd have a chance to play with other players. Steve Kerr's there, you know, there's a lot of really good players, uh, good coaches that could help you develop. But there's also that chance of injury, and and if he was injured to start the season, that would be a huge disaster. That would make it very difficult to get off to the start that you're talking about, the kind of confidence-building start that you really want them to have, which is going to be difficult even healthy. So he has to be healthy at the top of his game to start this season. And you know, Devin Booker's the type of player that he, he starts off slow sometimes and really picks it up as the season goes along. And I think his focus this year, based on what he said, is to really start off this season strong. Shout out to Dave King, who had a chance to talk to him about uh, him not joining that Team USA team and really clarified it for everyone and basically said he's trying to be healthy. Um, the other thing to talk about before we get to the, the reason people are listening to this episode in Tom Leander, one national TV game only. <laughs> At first, it was reported that the Suns would have an ABC game. Not for a second did I believe that that was true. They can constantly <laughs> change. It can constantly change the schedule, of course, and and flex games into national TV and not national TV. Um, but right now, November twenty first against New Orleans, it's an ESPN game, which is of course on TV because of Zion Williamson. We all know that. That's what it's going to be, and that's going to be a fun game to watch because we know that this team, every team, kind of picks it up for national TV games. So we'll get to see Zion. We'll get to see Devin Booker versus that team. Devin Booker's had some great games against New Orleans. Uh, we'll see if he can keep it up against that newly revamped New Orleans team. So, If I could just gripe with the national TV thing for a second, I've seen people complain about that too. It, it sucks. I get it. It sucks. But you know what? If the Suns really come out and surprise everyone, they can add national TV games later, just like they did in the 2013-14 season when Goran Dragic and Gerald Green stole the hearts of you know enough NBA fans that suddenly the Suns had not one national TV game, but I think they had three or four that year uh, because they were the talk of the country at, at some points during that season, there was real talk about whether they would make the playoffs. Uh, but I've also just seen some people complaining about the national TV schedule in general. It should be a major victory on the part of all NBA fans that the New York Knicks only have three national TV games. That is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. I opened that up thinking that they were somehow going to hit us with 20 national TV games. I was going to be watching Julius Randle at 8 p.m. Eastern time on TNT <laughs> with with Charles Barkley and, and Shaq just relentlessly roasting that. Uh, and thank God that's not going to be the case. Now, there are still some problems. You know, Boston doesn't need 25 games. They're going to be a good team, but I think they're literally top five in terms of national TV appearances. I don't think they necessarily deserve that. You know, there are some teams like Denver, I think, might not even crack the top 10. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they certainly weren't as high as they should be for a team that has a real shot at maybe even the finals this year with how wide open the Western Conference is. Uh, so some minor gripes, but for the most part, I think the NBA got it right. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm not like I'm not overly upset. I, you know, I can see every single game. So I'm, I'm going to watch every single game no matter what. I, I don't need the national TV attention at this point. Let them develop. Let them figure it out and and see if they're a superstar. And maybe next year they add a few extra national TV games. I'm not overly concerned with that. But wasn't there a national TV game? Was it last season or the season before? Maybe it just happens once a year. I feel like we get our ass handed to us by the Spurs on national TV once a year. <laughs> but there was one 40-point loss in particular that I remember where I was just like, this is the worst possible thing that, that can happen. You get two chances maybe a year to prove that you're not a laughing stock and you go out there and you just get blown the fuck out. Uh, you know, I, I want the Suns to be competitive enough not to have to worry about that. Uh, national TV games are, are definitely a thing that should be earned and the Suns haven't earned it yet. They won 19 games. Yep, I agree. And if I'm not mistaken, I hate doing this from memory, but Devin Booker was injured right before that game that you're talking about, I believe. And it was a national TV game that they went on and played without him. And they had to market everyone else. And, and it was a disaster. You're completely right. That was pre DeAndre Ayton, too. They can't even market the number one pick. They, yeah, they were talking about nothing by the mid-second quarter. The announcers had no yeah. idea what to do. 
Yeah, that's that's when they go into podcast mode <laughs> and they start <laughs> recording a podcast, basically. But let's switch over to Tom Leander, uh, the interview that everyone's waiting to hear. And before we do that, I do want to remind people, please rate and review us. We've been really enjoying everyone who rates and reviews us on your podcast apps. If you have Apple, that's the easiest one to do. We appreciate everyone who does that. Um, but we'll switch over to that interview now. Tom Leander, of course, the voice of the Phoenix Suns, someone who's been around the team for a very long time has a lot of great insight and a lot of great stories. I think we got a really great interview out of him for this episode, and I think you'll really enjoy it. I am very excited about this. Joining us here on the Timeline Podcast, the voice of the Suns, basically, on TV for a very long time, Tom Leander. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. How's it going, Mike? What's up, Sam? Very excited to have you here. I will t- I will say just my journey a little bit. I'm going to tell my story a little bit for you. I moved to Arizona in 2005. Previous to living in Arizona, I lived somewhere without an NBA team. So when I first got to Arizona, it was the first time that I was somewhere where I could watch every NBA game of a team. And that's basically all I did. And that, of course, was the 2005-2006 season. And basically, you kind of walked me through my journey of watching an NBA team day in and day out through that time. So this is personally very exciting for me because I associate the Suns with your voice and what you did during that time, which was, in my opinion, the most exciting time for the Suns, obviously, in a very long time. So thank you very much for everything you've done for this team. You've been around it for a very long time. Well, don't thank me. You can thank Steve Nash and Amari and Sean and Joe Johnson and Raja and Mike D'Antoni. I mean, I was along for the ride. And you talk about perfect timing to be a play-by-play announcer in the NBA. Um, And I can't tell you how many other announcers working for other teams, like even the Warriors back then, they weren't very good. And their announcers would come over and go, man, you're so lucky you get to call these games. And I'm like, I am? Man, I don't know. I haven't been doing it that long. I thought it was always this good. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, I probably didn't appreciate it as much at the time, um, but I certainly do now. And it's funny because recently, especially the last few months, I keep running into people who have the very same comments saying they've grown up with that team and listening to some of the the games and the calls, et cetera. And uh, it makes me feel really good and really old. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's a certain age group. That, uh, that just grew up with that team. I think so many people became fans of the Suns. Like, like Sam, for example. Sam is actually in New York. He's not in Arizona. He became a fan yes. of the Phoenix Suns because of those teams. So, uh, you know, Steve Nash had such a big yep. influence, you know, outside of Arizona and just at, through the NBA as a whole. You know, they were the second favorite team of every NBA fan that wasn't a Suns fan, basically, throughout that time. Mm-hmm. And you really, you got to sit basically front row for that entire run and interact with the players, interact with the coaches, interact with the team. And obviously you look back on it now and you appreciate it. Was there any specific thing that would happen that you, what kind of memories does it bring up when we talk about that era of the Suns? Yeah, well, it's interesting because you talk about the second favorite team, even of, you know, fans and uh, people around the country that were living in NBA cities. And I remember uh, hopping on, uh, in New York City, we're at Madison Square Garden, and we're hopping on the elevator. And when you enter the garden in New York, you basically come through the bowels, the very bottom of the building. It's basically kind of where the subway is. So um, I got off the bus along with Amari and Sean and Steve, and we all get on this big freight elevator, basically. And it starts to close. And next thing you know, there's about 15 or 20 arena workers you know, with their thick New York accents running, going, Steve, John, you know, Amari, oh my God, we love you. And I'm like, this is crazy because you're in this city, New York, that is sports crazed and very loyal to their teams. And that was the moment where I thought, wow, these guys have taken over not just Phoenix, but the entire nation. And, you know, with Steve coming from Canada and just fans from Australia, I mean, it was around the world uh, that this Suns team and that that era captured the NBA imagination of all those fans. Yo, I can tell you from personal experience, Tom, I was one of those New Yorkers, maybe a little bit less of a thick New York accent, at least I hope so. But uh, (laughs) yeah, it disappeared, man. Where'd it go? (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, it's never had too much of one to begin with, I'd like to think. But I moved out of the city recently. Um, But that era and just watching you call games was so special to my formative years um, as well. But, you know, you're kind of a special figure in Suns history because you're 
one of the only people who has seen so many eras of Suns basketball. You've been in and around the team for, I mean, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's over 30 years now. Uh, taking it all the way back to when you first were a ball boy uh, with the team. Do you want to maybe talk about a little bit those first years with the Suns? I know your favorite player growing up was Walter Davis. You have some interesting experiences with him and just what initially drew you to the Suns all the way back then. And whether you ever knew that it would become something that kind of just would stick with you for life uh, through this career. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has come full circle, and I am incredibly blessed uh, to still be with the organization. And it really started thanks to my sister, Mary. So I'm one of eight kids. I'm the last of eight kids in my family, and we were growing up here in Phoenix. We moved from Chicago when I was about five years old. So uh, my sister, Mary, started babysitting for Dick Van Arsdale's kids. And Dick Van Arsdale, the original son, um, mm-hmm. later became coach, worked in the front office. And so anyways, I'm you know a young kid who's playing basketball. And here's my sister who's babysitting for the most popular Suns player of the time. And so uh, what happened was I decided I wanted to go out and attempt to be a ball boy. So you had to go through an interview process and we had some family friends who had a connection. Their son was already a ball boy. So I used that to gain entrance into an interview. And my my parents would only let me work on the weekends. They were very strict and they wouldn't let me do any weekday games. So I went to the interview and I met with a gentleman by the name of Ted Podoleski, who uh, longtime Suns fans might remember. He was one of the original marketing uh, executives of the team. And so I met with Ted and I said, "Uh, Mr. Podoleski, my parents will only let me work on Friday and Saturday nights. And he's like, wow, son, I'm sorry. You know, either you're in or you're out. And I said, well, I'm good friends with this family. He goes, oh, okay, well, sounds good. So they allowed me to work just weekends. So then I became a ball boy and met Dick Van Arsdale that way and said, oh, my sister Mary is a babysitter. And next thing you know, I start babysitting for his kids. So that kind of, that's how this whole thing started. And when I see Dick Van Arsdale now, not only Dick, but his kids, um, you know, who are now up and grown with children of their own, it's, uh, it is, it was a long time ago that this started, but I became a huge fan, followed that 75, 76 team when they went to the finals. And then, you know, years later, I did the documentary on the Cinderella Suns and just the players that were on that team with Paul Westfall and Alvin Adams and Ricky Sobers and, and Dick Van Arsdale, of course. So that was out of all the things that I've done in my yeah about 30 years with the team, the documentary on the 1975-76 Cinderella Suns was by far uh, the thing I'm most proud of and that was most meaningful to me because uh, I saw what it meant for those players uh, to come together again years later, to appreciate each other's company, to look back on those stories and see highlights they had never seen before. Gosh, back in 75, 76, there was no ESPN Sports <laughs> Center. You don't have social media where you can instantly go to the locker room and see the dunk that you had in that game or the big shot that you hit. And even when they arrived back at the airport, when they clinched uh, the trip to the finals and they beat the Golden State Warriors, most of these players had never seen that footage of them going into Sky Harbor Airport with 5,000 fans packed into the terminal to greet them there. So literally there were tears coming down the eyes of these players because they had never seen the footage before. Wow. Wow. That is really great. And it's really a testament to the organization, you know, being that even Dick Van Arsdale is still around this team and, and working for the team. And, and of course, you uh, have basically grown up and into all these different roles for the team. Was it always like play by play or these pre and post game stuff? Was that always something that you wanted to do or did you just want to be around basketball? And that was kind of where you found your role. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I just wanted to get into sports and into broadcasting. I started doing uh, weekend sports in Monterey, California, and then I got a job in Tucson doing weekend sports, became the sports director at the CBS affiliate there. So I was doing local sports to begin with, and then the opening occurred with the Suns. It was actually their uh, production company that was putting together their halftime features, and that allowed me to put my foot through the door. And then when they moved into America West Arena, they opened up their own production facility, hired their own production crew, which included me as the producer and host of their pregame, halftime, and postgame shows. So that was 1993. And my first season full-time with them was 93-94, though I had worked for that other company the previous two years. But um, yeah, so at that time, I was really focused on the studio shows. And then as time went along, they added the Rattlers, they had the Arizona Sand Sharks indoor soccer league team, and they needed somebody to do the play-by-play. So they threw me in there. I wasn't doing anything during the summers anyways. And I started to build up a play-by-play resume. And then I started doing Phoenix Mercury games. 
Um, and then I'll never forget the day that Rick Welts, uh, the club president, pulled me aside in 2003 and asked if uh, I was interested in doing some play-by-play for the Suns. Uh, so at that time, I was doing just the road games, and then Gary Bender was doing the home games. So it was kind of a, a nice balance, too, where I could do play-by-play when they were on the road and go back to doing the studio shows, which I actually enjoy even more. Wow, that's that's really amazing just to be able to to, to grow uh, with the team and kind of become what you've been trying to do for that long amount of time. Uh, was what is it like being that close to the game and sitting? You know, we had K, K- Ray on recently too, a few months ago, and uh, he came on and he talked about his experiences, of course, calling the games play by play. And he talked about sometimes it's actually kind of hard to see what's going on that close to the game, or sometimes coaches will stand in front of them uh, and make it difficult to see what's happening. Uh, what is it like being that close to the game? Can you hear the players? Do you get to understand their personalities, or the coaches, or even the refs, really? Yeah, I think, you know, when the game's going on, there's so much going on in your head. You're trying to, you know, keep up with, you know, who's making the shot, who's defending, what the score is, the stat monitor, listening to your analyst, playing off of your analyst, trying to get in and out of commercial breaks cleanly. So there's a whole lot going on. So I don't think you really appreciate it while the game's going on. And in fact, I mean, you talk about not having the best view. That just happened the other day. I was doing the the Mercury game when Brittany Griner got into the fight. And uh, so, you know, it breaks out right in front of us. And next thing you know, there's just a mass of bodies. Everybody's standing up. And at first, I didn't even know who she was chasing. Tom, the other thing I want to ask you about is you have worked with some interesting characters, I think, throughout your time with the Suns, specifically Eddie Johnson and Tom Chambers. I think those guys are both really funny and entertaining guys. What is it like working with either one of them? I think they're both really funny. Yeah, it has been just the best part of my experience with the Suns overall. Um, I mean, doing games with Eddie, doing shows with TC, doing the shows with the two of them together. Um, But beyond that, you know, I can comfortably say that we're, I'm good friends with each one of them. I'd love to go out, have dinner or watch a movie with either Eddie or TC. And, you know, we've done a lot of things together socially. So um, for that, you know, again, going back to me being a kid and a Suns fan and watching the teams in the 80s with Eddie and TC and now, you know, calling them and go, hey, you want to go grab dinner or whatever? It's, it is, it's another reason for me to just think how lucky I am. Um, but Beyond that, personality-wise, you know, with I'll start with Eddie. I mean, everything he says is so genuine. I mean, nothing that he says on the air or talks about in person is regurgitated from media notes or something he's read. I mean, he just he's uh, he's a real thinker, and everything that comes out of his mouth is unique and genuine and interesting and funny. Um, I just love everything about him, and uh, he's just a really intelligent guy with a super sense of humor. And TC, I mean, for being a country boy, (laughs) hunter, you know, just, you know, he calls himself a redneck and he's another brilliant person. I mean, his recollection, his mind with numbers and I'm like, TC, man, I can't believe you remembered that. And he just, what's interesting with TC too, is I asked him initially to come on the shows. I was doing the shows by myself for like the first eight years and it was so boring. I mean, you you just can't have fun. I mean, you can't (laughs) laugh with yourself. So it was just very dry and I'm lucky to have made it through that. And then he retired, started working community relations and I brought him in on a couple shows and like, man, he could be really good. At the time he was hesitant though, to be opinionated and honest. And after two or three shows though, TC, you should really think about doing TV. So then the next year we convinced uh, the powers that be and the broadcast director to bring him on full time. And ever since then, just to watch his growth in the first couple of months too, our timing wasn't there. He wasn't comfortable. I wasn't comfortable because I hadn't been working with anybody. And I'll never forget, I think it was mid-December, man, we had a show and all of a sudden we just finished. I go, oh my gosh, I think we have something here because we just had had chemistry from that point forward. And more than anything, it was just TC being comfortable. And now he's ultimately comfortable out there. He's willing to say pretty much everything and anything. I, I joke that I have to put a shock collar on him sometimes because if he goes too far, I may end up working with somebody else and I don't want to work with anybody else because he becomes a little too opinionated. But I think that's what fans appreciate and what they want to hear. Um, so for the two of them to be working with EJ and TC is, uh, my favorite part of the season too, is the last show when one of the producer producers will put together the best of Tom Chambers and Eddie (laughs) Johnson from the season. And I just realized how much fun we've had, even amidst a season when you only won 19 games. Yeah. Both of them have become a huge staple of 
Suns TV for for this entire generation of fans, really. And I, I think you're right. Fans really appreciate being able to get that inside uh, a, a little bit of a taste of personality from those players. Going back even further, I mean, you worked with uh, Dan Marley. It's Scott Williams with you in the booth. Mm-hmm. From your perspective, whether it's been as a play-by-play guy or doing the uh, post-game show and pre-game show, how do you really build that chemistry when you're working with so many different moving parts? You know, how do you orchestrate all of that uh, as that main voice? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know if I really have an answer to that other than just sitting in the chair, sitting next to that person and trying to gauge when they want to talk, um, how to set them up. Everybody's different. You know, Scott Williams, very outgoing and he'll jump in. And other times with Dan Marley, Dan was just, I mean, we had so much fun together. We, we did some games that I just look back on and um, I love his sense of humor. And obviously fans loved him. I, I used to say back then too, he could just burp into the microphone for two and a half hours <laughs> during the course of the game and people would go, genius, brilliant. He's so good. I mean, Dan could have said anything, but he was a lot of fun too. So, but at different personalities and different timing, timing's everything. And there's certain uh, analysts that don't talk as much. There are others like Eddie Johnson that I know if we're down 27 points in the fourth quarter and we have eight minutes left on the clock, I'm just like dying. I'm going, please <laughs> clock, just keep running. But if I'm working a game with say Eddie Johnson, I'm not worried at all because we can just go off track and I can bring up any topic and he'll have an opinion and he'll carry us to the next break uh, during the course of a game that is just is meaningless and already, you know, we know the end result. Um, so as far as that goes, I think you just have to and then hopefully gain a, a good relationship with them you know, away from the microphone, away from the court so that you uh, you feel comfortable and that you trust each other. That's the biggest thing. Um, hopefully they trust me that I'm not going to take them down a road that they don't want to go do. They don't want to talk about a certain topic or, um, you know, just different uh, idiosyncrasies with each analyst. Um, so you just, it just, it, it differs with each one. And Ann Myers Drysdale, I love working with her doing WNBA games because she carries me. She knows these women way better than I do, uh, knows the background, has followed them through college. So I really try to let her carry the broadcast. Whereas, you know, in some of the other shows, I think it's a little bit more balanced, but Somebody once told me that really the play-by-play guy should talk 20% of the time and the analyst should talk 80%. Mm. And I'm totally comfortable with that because I I really enjoy the people that I've worked with. And I think the viewers would rather hear more of what they're saying than the play-by-play guy who's never really stepped on an NBA court for the most part. Now, as a play-by-play guy, you have a catchphrase. I think what you're most known for is the elevates and detonates. That's something that I'm sure people probably say to you on the streets when they see you. <laughs> we actually run, you were on a radio show. One of our friends that listens to the show had you uh, record a bump for us where you say it for us that I love. It excited me endlessly. Um, where did that come from? Did you did you come up with that? Is it something you heard somebody else say? Or, or did you feel like you needed to have like a catchphrase like that, especially with Amare on the team? Yeah, I grew up listening to Al McCoy and Chick Hearn. So obviously here in Phoenix, Al McCoy with the Suns. And then when I was in college at Loyola Marymount, Los Angeles, I watched all the Lakers games and Chick Hearn was the king of catchphrases Mm -hmm. too. So he and Al McCoy, that's how I grew up. And so, you know, I always wanted to be entertaining like they were to call the game, be descriptive. And I've always thought too, that, you know, it's pretty much whether it's baseball, basketball, football, it's the same thing. They've got a basketball, they're shooting it, they're going to make it or they're missing it, they're going to dribble it, they're, you know, but it's the announcers who can describe it in different ways that I always really appreciated and I love that kind of creativity. Um, so I, I didn't go into it with, okay, I've got to have certain catchphrases, but over time, some kind of rolled off and I've always been, I love to write, um, I've always enjoyed creative writing. So I think more creative words come out of my mouth maybe than should, uh, <laughs> especially for play by play. Cause if I were to go back, I'd probably cut it down quite a bit. I mean, I enjoyed some of the, you know, some of the fun calls, but they're also easy to fall back on too. Cause you kind of use the same ones over and over again. I've learned to enjoy Mike Breen who, you know, yeah, he has bang, but you know, outside of that, you know, pretty much just is more conversational. Uh, but as far as the elevate and detonates is concerned, I don't know where that came from. A lot of times I did think during the off season about different ways of describing things. That was a game in Boston and Joe Johnson drove baseline and I just, you know, elevate came out of my mouth and then, and detonate followed. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, where did that come from? And even Bob Adlock, our producer goes, dude, that was great. He says that in my ear while the game <laughs> is going on. And I'm like, I, I don't even know where that came from. So, you know, I got a little bit of feedback from that and uh, I, yeah I think as I look back now especially Amari's dunk 
against the Warriors yep. and Anthony Tolliver. Yep. Um, that's yeah, I I enjoy listening to that because I think it captured the moment. Uh, but I will tell you, there were probably at least four or five other times where I used it and it was just a normal dunk. And I kicked myself and go, no, man, you got to <laughs> save that for the special ones. <laughs> I, I got to be honest. I never knew that Elevate and Detonate drew its origin from a Joe Johnson dunk. I think that's one of those, <laughs> one of those phrases. I, yeah, I, believe me, believe me, I was shocked too. And he, uh, but he could get up. I mean, he was, it's funny because we think about Joe Johnson now as slow-mo Joe and ISO Joe because he put on weight and got so much bigger later in his career, but he was pretty pretty darn bouncy when he came over from Boston and that was a game against his former team. So he probably had a little extra bounce. The other thing, because you just mentioned him in your last response that I really want to ask you about. You've seen so many areas of Suns basketball, kind of the only constants are you and Al McCoy over the past 30 or so years. How has your relationship with Al changed in that time? You know, going from, you talk about getting that call from, uh, I think you said it was Rick Welts when you were first promoted to being uh, doing some play-by-play for the Suns. I don't know if at that time it was uh, always exclusively TV, but maybe, you know, from way back then when Al McCoy was the guy up until now, as you've grown through all of these various roles, uh, you know, what sort of advice have you gotten from Al and how has your uh, relationship or even friendship progressed? Well, I'm glad you asked that because after that meeting with Rick Welts, my first thought was, oh my gosh, I'm going to be able to do Phoenix Suns play-by-play. And about 30 seconds later, I caught myself and thought, oh, dear God, I'm going to be <laughs> quasi replacing Al McCoy. I mean, Al was going to still be doing radio, but I was going to be taking over the road games, which he had been doing. And now all of a sudden I'm terrified. Like, There's no fans are going to like they're going to grab their pitchforks and rush the arena because, uh, you know, Al is just a legend and and he's a legend for me as well. So that was very intimidating for me. And I will tell you the day after I met with Rick and he offered me the position, I got a call from Al McCoy and he asked me to come to his office. And I was like, oh, wow. And at that time, you know, Al and I got along fine. It wasn't like we were buddy buddies or anything, but uh, he called me into the office, asked me to close the door. And he said, Tom, this is your time. Congratulations. I'm really happy for you. And that's just, I'll never forget him doing that. And it, it eased you know, the, the, I guess the terrified feeling a little bit uh, because it made me feel more comfortable with him and his acceptance of this change. Uh, but it didn't really change as far as the fans were concerned. I know the first few weeks when I was doing games, uh, they're probably going, get this kid out of here. I mean, he is not Al McCoy and he's got a lot of work. And, you know, I'd never done NBA play-by-play and I was nervous. Holy cow. I mean, the first game I ever did was in Utah, first game of the year. And, uh, I will never go back and look at that show because uh, that would be really <laughs> awful. Uh, unfortunately, the fans back here had to, but you know, hopefully over time, they, you know, they gave me some time and a couple months into it, I felt uh, more comfortable. And Eddie and I, it took a little while too for Eddie and I to get, to get a rhythm. And I remember there were times where I was talking to our producer. I'm like, oh man, there's time. I just don't know how to get Eddie engaged. Sometimes, you know, he's just, uh, he's not there and not talkative enough. And, and I realized it's really me. I'm just not leading him into the proper topics or including him more. So there was a lot, it was a huge learning curve for me. Uh, but Al was there every step of the way. And I did go to him for advice quite a bit. Um, you know, radio and TV is quite different though. You know, radio, you're calling every pass, every dribble, every shot TV, you know, the fans can see it. So you have to pull back quite a bit as a play-by-play announcer. Uh, but Al has been, has been just great. And really our friendship has strengthened so much over the last five or 10 years. And I, I just really enjoy being around him. And I just, I'm so happy that the Suns organization values him as much as the fans do and have allowed Al to keep calling games as long as he wants to. This is his baby. You know, if he wants to keep calling these games for another five, six, ten years, by God, he should be allowed to do that. More with Tom in just a second. But first, football season is here, people. It's time to start placing your bets for NFL and college football. Blue Wire is teaming up with sports information traders and the legend John Price, one of the world's most successful sports bettors, so our listeners are given the chance to make more money on football this season. Go to sportsinformationtraders.com blue and get the college football and NFL futures plays and make up to 15 times your money for only a $99 investment. Last year, sports information traders correctly predicted the Clemson Tigers to win the college football championship, making one client alone $110,000. 
The year before that, Kurt Presley of Sports Information Traders made $1 million with a preseason wager on the Philadelphia Eagles to win the Super Bowl. John Price and the Sports Information Traders team can guide you on the best ways to make money on futures bets and preseason football betting picks. You get all of that for just $99 and the opportunity to make 15 times your money. It's totally worth getting Sports Information Traders betting picks. Sports Information Traders has been featured in ESPN, Gambling911.com and Entrepreneur Magazine, and many more. John Price has been successfully making money on betting sports for 20 years, making a big return for a small investment with Sports Information Traders Futures Picks. Get started now by going to sportsinformationtraders.com slash B-L-U-E. Once again, sportsinformationtraders.com slash blue to have your chance at 15 times return this football betting season. <laughs> you know, being with the team as long as you have, you've been around so many you know, Suns legends, but also Hall of Famers, NBA legends. There's, of course, you know, Steve Nash, Amari Stoudemire, but there's also Grant Hill, uh, you know, Charles Barkley, and even Shaq. And I was actually thinking about Shaq recently, um, just because how weird that arrow was with the Suns. And it's just almost like a blip and, and like, oh, yeah, Shaq was on the Suns for a, few, a year and a half, basically. Do you have any stories or any memories of, of being around uh, Shaquille O'Neal at that time of his life and, and being on the Suns? I know a lot of people have some pretty crazy stories with this time uh, from the Suns. What do you remember about that era? Yeah, I think you described it perfectly. It was a blip. It was weird. <laughs> it was just a strange part of that Suns era. He never really contributed to the point that you know he professed to be contributing and what the Suns fans were hoping. And you know a lot of that deal too was was on Sean Marion and Sean I'm sure will be honest and say he helped force that trade he was not happy with his role with the Suns and kind kind of being like third or fourth fiddle on the team so you know the Suns rolled the dice and they went after Shaq and you know there were some interesting times I mean I enjoyed doing some games when he flew into the stands and fell on the lap of Paul Allen (laughs) and then when the benches were clearing every time he'd dive for a loose ball that he had no chance at saving um and you know and then there's there's classic stories of him in the trainer's room chasing Mike Elliott, who is our strength and conditioning coach, chasing him around the uh, the locker room and the training room, but naked. Uh, <laughs> so that there's actually, unfortunately, I think video of that somewhere that hopefully has been doctored up. But, uh, you know, he's he was an interesting character. It just he was at the tail end of his career. And to be quite honest, I think when he was with the Suns, he was more concerned with his post playing career than he was with his current career. I mean, um, I'll just leave it at that. I mean, it was, <laughs> he was, he was a lot of fun. Uh, I had no issue with him whatsoever. Uh, but he was preparing himself for life after basketball. Meanwhile, the, uh, the past decade of Suns basketball, you know, you've obviously still been involved with the organization through some not so great times. Uh, we're coming up on the end of the decade now, and the Suns have not made the playoffs this decade. When you look back on this decade and all of the faces uh, that have passed through that locker room that I'm sure you've interacted with. What are you going to remember most from from this era of Suns basketball? You know, we're we're going to talk about the current team in just a little bit. I definitely want to hear your thoughts on that as well, and and hopefully there are better days ahead. Um, but just for the past several years, you know, what's it been like to be around? What's you know not always been such a great culture uh, in Phoenix? Um, yeah, it hasn't been a lot of fun sometimes as far as. Um, you know, coming on a post game show after they've lost by 20 plus points. But at the same time, you know what, guys, this is entertainment. And I've come to realize that luckily I'm not paid by the victory. Um, I'm paid to go on the air and hopefully be informative, be entertaining and have a good time. Um, so luckily the wins and losses, you know, they don't hit my checkbook. Um, but you know, over time ratings have gone down and, you know, I worry about that. You know, everybody should worry about their job security when the organization is not being as successful as they would like to be. So while it's been challenging, it's also been really rewarding too, because, you know, every year there's new players that come in, there's new coaches, especially lately, um, and you get to form new relationships. I mean, even Igor Kokoshkov and I were, were really good friends when he was an assistant under Alvin Gentry, and I was thrilled when he got the head coaching job. And then really devastated when they let him go after a year. But I'm excited about Monty Williams. So I've always tried to be a positive person. And Igor is going to land on his feet. He got an assistance job in Sacramento. So there have been a lot of changes, you know, from Earl Watson, you know, to Jay Triano. And, you know, I go back to when Jeff Hornacek was here. I mean, Jeff did an amazing job. That was the last 
really fun season we had. And we nearly made the playoffs and with Gerald Green and Goran Dragic. And Goran Dragic will go down as one of my all-time favorite people that have played for the Suns. Uh, he and I still keep in contact. I love that guy. I mean, he just is literally one of the nicest people you'll ever meet and just easy to talk to. He and I used to sit on the, the Suns team bus together um, when, when they allowed the broadcasters to be on the bus with the team. And uh, Goran would sit down next to me and he'd show me his phone and he'd show me video clips of Serbia playing Bosnia and then how they were shooting, uh, you know, basically fireworks in the arena at each other. <laughs> and it was just crazy. He was just a, a really interesting guy. So, you know, I take something out of every season. Last year, I loved Ryan Anderson. Ryan Anderson, before we traded him off, what a great guy, really easy to talk to. And um, I liked Eric Bledsoe too. I, was, I went to Alabama when we traded for him and I was one of the first son's employees to meet him and we went and did a feature and followed him around for a couple of days in Birmingham. So, you know, each year I'm able to, you know, meet another player, meet a new coach and continue working more than anything with the people I've been blessed to work with. And, and those are the guys in Suns productions that nobody knows. Nobody knows Mark Goldberg or David Hughes or Peyton Wigness or Dave Grappentine or Ryan Baffalukas or Tommy Arweas. These are all guys that have been working for Suns TV productions really for the last 20 plus years out of all the departments in the Suns uh, in the Suns organization, we have the most experience and have been around the longest and it's been awesome. I mean, at the end of each season too, we all go to Rocky point and we just like 15 of us just pile into my brother-in-law's house and we just have at it for three or four days and have a blast <laughs> and play beach golf and hang out and drink beers. And so we, we really, really get along well. And I don't know how many people can say that, you know, they respect and like, uh, all the people that they work with. I love all the people that I work with. They are truly uh, my closest friends. And that is probably the greatest statement that I could make um, in terms of my happiness with being with the Suns this long. Now, obviously, this offseason brought a lot of change to this team. I think more than probably any other time in the last decade, uh, maybe other than when Steve Nash really left, this is like a new page in, in, in the Suns history. I think the team seems to be very well put together. Of course, Monty Williams, one of the longest contracts that the Suns have had for a head coach, James Jones uh, being installed as the new general manager. And really, there seems to be a clear vision of trying to like reignite the culture here in, in Phoenix and really give the fans something to cheer for. What is your? Obviously, you've interacted with James Jones. Obviously, you've interacted with Monty Williams. What is your impression of the vision that they have for this team? And how do you think it's going to look going forward? Well, I think you can see immediately the changes that they've made in terms of experience and character, uh, how these guys conduct themselves, not only on the court, but more importantly, off the court. Um, so I love everything that they've done during this offseason. I love the fact that they drafted a Cam Johnson and a Ty Jerome, guys that have experience in college that are older. Uh, we've had plenty of the 18, 19 year olds uh, that are coming in so young and so raw and so immature. Um, and sure, some of them do develop in the NBA, but where we are right now and what we needed and the signing of Ricky Rubio and bringing in Frank Kaminsky and Aaron Baines, I mean, um, and even Czech Diallo. Gosh, I just read an article um, in The Athletic, uh, the beat reporter for the Pelicans, I think in conjunction with Gina Mizell, who covers the Suns. I mean, Czech Diallo sounds like one of the most popular players in the NBA. He's going to be a great character guy, tremendous locker room person. Um, so re-signing Kelly Oubre, bringing him back. I mean, he just added so much life to the team and spirit last year. So uh, they made all the right moves. And I don't care what anybody says. Ricky Rubio was number one on my point guard list above D'Angelo Russell, above Kyrie Irving. I mean, there, there's just certain players that weren't going to fit here, that weren't going to be happy here. And I'm not going to say Ricky Rubio is Steve Nash because he's not. But I think in terms of being a pass-first point guard, a great teammate, a tremendous character person, somebody who's going to relate to the fans, he has a lot of the same qualities and the experience and the fact that, you know, Dallas and Mark Cuban quit on Steve Nash. A lot of people have quit on Ricky Rubio. He has a lot to prove. And so he, there was no doubt he was my number one point guard. I, I wanted him above anybody else. I mean, Rozier, eh, I don't, you just don't know. But Ricky Rubio has proven himself. <laughs> and I think Devin Booker is going to love playing alongside Ricky Rubio. I think Oubre is going to enjoy it as well. I mean, there are going to be more shots for everybody. And um, Ricky is going to make sure that his teammates um, are happy and being fed. And, and that's what they need. And DeAndre Ayton now is going to receive – 
interior passes that we're not making it to him properly. And so I think Aiton is really going to flourish now. And, and I think that's going to be the key guys going forward is, is the improvement of DeAndre Aiton and the fire in his belly. Um, if that improvement, if that fire is ignited and he can take us to the next level, because I truly believe if he doesn't, then um, we're really not going to be t- able to take the strides. And I think he can do it. And I want him to show everybody that he can do it. I think he's a good kid. He's obviously so talented, so f- such a physical specimen. I don't think he realizes how he could dominate on a basketball court. So I hope he can push that button or somebody else can push that button and really just set him off the second year. And he can just go out because 16 points and 10 rebounds is nice. But that's what Marcin Gortat gave us. And I don't want Marcin Gortat. As, and I love Marcin Gortat. But DeAndre Ayton can be much more than Marcin Gortat. You know, Marcin Gortat benefited from low expectations. He was a second round pick. DeAndre Ayton at number one, it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, you're right, Tom. I mean, we talk all the time on this podcast. There's not much doubt anymore that Devin Booker is a killer. Uh, just a superb, superb offensive player. But to really take the next step... You need a second superstar, uh, and we both hope that DeAndre Ayton can become that. The other thing that happened this offseason that we haven't touched on yet, the Suns brought back Kelly Oubre, and perhaps even more so than Oubre's play on the court, which I thought was pretty good. Uh, I, I think you can't have a conversation about Kelly Oubre without bringing the Suns' culture into things and noticing changes in how the Suns' locker room operated, even if, you know, once Oubre got injured in the second half of the season, maybe the win-loss results weren't quite there. But from our perspective as fans, it certainly seemed like the team was happier uh, and that they had more chemistry once Oubre arrived in Phoenix. Can you speak to any of that and and just what sort of impact Oubre made uh, on the Suns once he arrived? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, it was so obvious uh, it was palpable for everybody, whether it be his teammates or the fans, or the broadcasters. I mean, you could just see everybody enjoying themselves. And Kelly just, you know, with his uh, demeanor on the court and his big personality and his head pop. And I mean, we had fun at the end of the season in one of our pregame shows and he came on with us and we picked four kids out of the crowd before the game and had a head popping competition. And he, I mean, he led it, he grabbed the microphone and he started basically going one kid after another, giving them advice. And I'm like, man, I love this guy's personality, certainly from a TV standpoint, but you just want to be around him. And I think he does have that magnetic appeal without at least so far, you know, rubbing his teammates or anybody else the wrong way. You know, sometimes when you bring that kind of attention to yourself, um, you have to back it up. And he sure did. I mean, he was backing it up on the floor and he was scoring 20 plus points. And before it went down, I think he had what, like 31 in New Orleans back home. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot of pressure too. You're on a new team, you're back home, you're trying to prove yourself. And he lived up to all the expectation, not even lived up to the expectation. Nobody expected that from him. But I think, you know, once he continued to play well and all of a sudden they put him in the starting lineup and the team won five out of seven when he was there, I think part of the starting lineup late in the season. So, um, you know, now the expectations will be higher for him, but he's also going to come in with predetermined uh, leadership ability um, and a place on this team that he needed to carve out when he first arrived. Now I think other players are going to look at him going, hey, you're one of the leaders. We saw what you did last year. And so now he can carry that forward and start from a new point and a point more of power and leadership. Um, And that's really what this team is going to need. But more than anything, guys, again, this is entertainment and basketball should be fun. And Kelly Oubre has fun when he's out there on the court. And we all sense it. His teammates sense it. And it just makes everybody play harder and enjoy themselves more. Yeah, I can't wait to see what they're like. Uh, going forward now I do want to say I tweeted out at the beginning of this episode some questions for you I asked if anybody had any questions for Tom Leander that we could get on this podcast and I got a few serious a few not so serious ones and you can just fire through these as quickly as you want to Uh, but some of these are great questions so the first one is what was your favorite Suns game to call play-by-play uh it was the playoffs uh when Steve Nash uh and the Suns knocked off the Dallas Mavericks in Dallas yeah, uh, I think it was game six. Yep. And Steve, it was just went nuts in that game uh, offensively. I mean, that was when you could see that Steve, if he wanted, could have easily averaged 30 points a game. Right. And until Steph, st- until Steph Curry came along, I've always maintained that Steve Nash is the best shooter I've ever seen. I mean, he had more 50, 40, 90 seasons. And people are like, oh, Reggie Miller, Larry Bird. I said, yeah, but they're not bringing the ball down the court. They're not fighting through screens. Big guys setting screens top of the key and then him chasing around Chris Paul or Steph Curry or you know, all the quick point guards. I mean, and then to come back and shoot at that high of a level, um, Steve was just 
he was masterful, but he was so unselfish that, he, you know, unless he had to, and he did in that Dallas series when he took over, and I think he had like a 40-point game, and uh, I've, I have to go back and look what his averages were, but, I mean, he just was exceptional mm-hmm. offensively. And so, yeah, being able to call that clinching game in Dallas over Dirk and the Mavs, uh, I think that was 2005, I believe. Um and so that was that was probably the the most memorable game because we didn't have a chance to do a lot of playoff games. That's usually when we had to hand things over to ESPN or right. TNT. So at that point, we were still able to get into the second round of the playoffs. Yeah, I think that was the game where he kind of proved that he was just impossible to guard because if you let him shoot, he can score. And if you put pressure on him, he'll find someone open. And it's just like, okay, he's impossible. And I think that's what you know one of the reasons that led to a few MVPs <laughs> going forward. I remember that game too when Dirk Nowitzki was screaming at Jason Terry for not covering up on Steve Nash and allowing him to shoot a three that I think sent it into overtime. But yeah, that was a really memorable game. And then afterwards, we all went out uh, with Brian Colangelo, treated with everybody at a restaurant bar, and uh, we just had a great time. And that was the beginning of just a, a terrific ride. I mean, that 04 05 season, then 05 06, and uh, just it continued. And But that one in Dallas was, uh, that, that was one of my favorite games to call. I just looked it up. He had a 48-point game in that series. It was 48. I almost said 45. And I'm like, God, was it 48? Wow. Is that insane? And he was getting – how about rebounds? Look at his rebounds too, like rebounds and assists. Like he was getting near triple-doubles. Yeah, he was getting near tri- – he got a triple-double literally the game after the 48-point game. But the crazy thing yeah. to me about that era, he took 28 shots in that 48-point game. Only six were threes. You know, and that's just speaking to the difference between the Suns at that time, their reputation for being the team that lived by the three, died by the three, which was nothing compared to the rate at which teams shoot threes today. It would be really, really fun watching uh, Steve Nash play in the 2010s and and just to see how many threes he could hoist up coming off that pick and roll. And, you know, I, I there's no doubt in my mind that he could average 25 points per game. And to do that against Dallas, too, the team that basically turned their back on him. Uh, I mean, that was such a great story when he became a free agent. Dallas was more interested in re-signing a player by the name of Marquise Daniels than they were signing (laughs) Steve Nash. And Rex Chapman had flown with the Suns contingent to Dallas to basically meet with Steve. And Rex was in a hotel uh, lobby, and he's walking past. And I think it was Mark Cuban or somebody. Don Actually, it was Don Nelson Jr. walked past him. And at that time, Rex was working in our front office and Don walked past him and Don was on his way to basically seal the deal with Marquise Daniels. He saw Rex. He's like, oh, that's weird. And then within 24 hours, he realized why Rex Chapman was there. He and Nash were such good friends. And Rex helped uh, hand that pen to Steve Nash to sign on with the Suns because they were really, <laughs> really good buddies. That's a, I've never heard that story. That's a great story. I didn't realize yeah. Rex Chapman was Marquise, part of that. Marquise Daniels over Steve Nash. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous looking back on it, how silly that is. Um, here's a funny one from Stephen Freeman. He says, have you ever elevated without detonating? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one. See, you know what? Tom, that's the that, kind of reaction kinda, it deserved. That kind of speaks to you. You know, you can never, <laughs> that's the danger of the catchphrase, right? You can never escape yeah. the catchphrase at a certain point. And Mike was saying yeah. that earlier in the episode. He's like, oh, people must come up to you in the street and say that. You know, it must get a little bit tiring. No, oh no, actually, I love it. I mean, seriously, it's you know what? It's better to be remembered than forgotten, I guess. But yeah, I'm not exactly sure as far as the way that question was posed. It seemed a little yeah. sexual, so I was going to let that go. <laughs> I like that. Um, right? I have Am to. I, right? I have to ask. Yeah, I, I can see it. <laughs> I can see it. It's not where you know I first went, but but I can see it. Um, I have to ask before we let you go, obviously you've been around the NBA for a long time. That's a huge topic of this podcast in general. Do you have like a go-to story when people want to talk to you about your time with the NBA? Do you have like one story that always comes to mind that you like to tell? Maybe it's well rehearsed. Maybe you're used to telling it over and over again that you like to give people when they ask you about your time with the NBA. Hmm. Um, not really. To be quite honest, I mean, a lot of the stories I told you guys, like Goran Dragic, uh, another one of my favorite stories is Grant Hill. When he was on the team, he would come back to the uh, the back of the plane and sit down next to me and start asking me questions about, in particular, at that time, Amari Stoudemire was going to be a free agent. And Grant sat down next to me and asked me, I'm like, I can't believe you're asking me this, you know, would you <laughs> re-sign Amari? 
So, but <laughs> I mean, looking looking wow. back at that, that was that was Grant Hill though preparing to be an executive in the league. So right. he really liked to bounce ideas off of other people, and he's like, "Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think?" And so it was great. You know, Grant was one of those people that. Um, he treated everybody the same and you were on an uh, equal footing with him. And uh, I've always really, really admired uh, Grant and appreciated him for that because I love telling that story. Now he's a Hall of Famer. Like, yeah, he came down, sat next to me on a plane and asked if I should, if he thought we should re-sign Amari. I'm like, wow, yeah. you're asking me that. So yeah. um, I think that just kind of encapsulates the whole story, my whole story with the Suns growing up as a fan. And I'm as big a fan as anybody. And, and I've told people that that go, wow, I grew up listening to you and this and that. I'm like, you don't understand. I'm a fanboy, just like all of you guys. I'm a right. fan of Tom Chambers and Eddie Johnson and Grant Hill and Goran Dragic and Jeff Hornacek and Dick Van Arsdale and Alvin Adams. My God, I still work with Alvin Adams. And now I get to play golf with Paul Westfall. He, he texts me every now and again, and we've played four rounds of golf this summer. So you know, you got. I, I grew up going to their basketball camp. I went to the Adams Westfall basketball camp for goodness sake. And now, you know, I get to work with Alvin, play golf with Paul, and it's uh, it's 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 too it's even better than a dream. So um, I think all those stories they but they kind of come back to the same theme of just how darn lucky I am. And now, when Grant Hill becomes an executive in the league, you can say I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> okay. Wait. 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 You can wait, take wait. all the credit. Last question for real. How did you answer Grant's question? <laughs> you know, I was actually, I was on board with exactly what Robert Sarver did. I said, you know what? I would not guarantee him $100 million, not with the knee surgeries that he had. I said, that just exposes the team too much. I said, I would guarantee the first two or three years, but I would not give him five years guaranteed. Um, I would put $100 million on the table and match their offer, but I wouldn't guarantee all five years. And that's actually what ended up happening. And, uh, and I never talked to Robert about that. And I don't know if Grant ever had a discussion, but I mean, that it's not groundbreaking that, that theory or that idea, because, you know, you just didn't know. And certainly with Amari, that's how it played out. His first couple of years in New York, he was fine and he played great and he added a huge buzz. And then all of a sudden his body started to break down. So, um, uh, yeah, that was that was my advice to Grant Hill, or not yeah. advice, or at least just my opinion. Yeah, I think time proves you correct. Maybe you have a future role in the front office for the Suns if something opens up for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what? Sometimes you get lucky. There are a lot of times where you know I've gone to some of the pre-draft workouts, and I love that whole speculation and watching players. And you know, you guys watch a lot. You guys could go into a gym and go, "That guy can play," or "Oh man, I wouldn't yeah. touch that guy." So, you know, uh, I'll go back to Amari Stoudemire when he came in for a pre-draft workout. I watched it with Jay Billis. So, Jay, obviously, you guys know him through ESPN. Um, he actually went to Duke, where my best friend from Brophy Prep, Mark Allery, went. So, I got to know Jay. Jay and I watched Amari's workout, and uh, he couldn't hit the broadside of the backboard. He could not shoot the ball. He was obviously very physical, but neither of us thought the Suns should ever draft him with the ninth overall pick. So three or four months into that rookie season, when he dominated Kevin Garnett, I uh, called Jay Billis and go, all right, Jay, you're lucky you're working at ESPN because you're not going to be a GM and neither am I anytime soon. <laughs> so you're not always right, but there have been other players like Kyle Kuzma that I saw come in and work out. And I'm like, that guy's way better than a late first round pick. Wow. Called it. That's a good call there. Um, yeah. I'll let you go. Obviously, we've been so generous with your time. This has been a really amazing interview. I think that Suns fans are really going to appreciate the time that you gave them here. And uh, I can't wait to see this team going forward. I think this is going to be a lot more watchable. I think the ratings probably won't be down this year. Let's just say that. I think they're going to go up. Um, we got a point guard. Uh, we got a power forward. And uh, we got some, some, some players around uh, Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. I think uh, for Devin Booker, maybe the first time in his career where he has really no massive holes on the roster so i can't wait to see going forward and i can't wait to see and hear you uh going forward calling the suns thank you once again tom for joining us all right guys thanks i enjoyed it channing from three bounces around and that's been the sun's night in a nutshell three-pointer number 19 crowd wants to stop The Suns' new franchise record, 21 threes in a game. Oh, right beyond the three-point line. Ash waiting for the screen. Shot clock is down to eight. He's
Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.